Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Amlaw Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Laufel, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The Amlaw Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrence and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of the Cast. Of course, as always, I am Adam Wilder, and today we have another, just like every episode, we have great guests. Today we're talking with Dave Rabine, and Dave is a retired Army FA-52 nuclear officer, then he worked at the, the labs, and then he currently serves as a uh, in a technical capacity with the National Strategic Research Institute as a consultant. Dave, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Good to be here. So when you were in the Army, you were in the Army at a time when officers had pre-delegation authority with tactical nuclear weapons. So you've lived through that, and you've watched sort of the peace dividend come and go. And we're now in this new era in which we've got the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans. And for all of them, tactical nuclear weapons are playing an important role in their strategy. The, the Russians you know, are sort of the best example of that. And so the reason I had asked you to come on NucleCast was to talk about this idea that I, I often hear that says, well, you know, sort of a nuke is a nuke. You know, there's no difference between a low-yield tactical nuclear weapon and a, you know, a much higher-yield strategic nuclear weapon. That they, you know, the use of a single nuke always leads to Armageddon. There's sort of this, you know, this idea that that's where it all always leads to. But as a 52, uh, you guys as a community know weapons effects better than anybody. And I wanted to sort of get your your thoughts and take on this concept that that sort of I adhere to that this idea that nukes are just all nukes are nukes and they're all strategic and there's no real difference and they all lead down the same path. I don't adhere to that perspective and I wanted to get your take and for you to explain to the audience, you know, some of these differences that exist between an ICBM and the yields of an ICBM and potentially, you know, nuclear artillery, nuclear cruise missiles, short, medium range nuclear ballistic missiles, and just help us to better understand the spectrum of nuclear weapons and what their differences may be. So can you can you start us off by sort of helping us to understand that spectrum? Well, I'll try without writing a whole book. <laughs> um, I will grant that nukes are the same in that they all use uh, fissioning atoms to, to create energy. And there's comfort to some people to say, well, a nuke is a nuke. And if you cross this barrier, uh, you know, we're automatically going to respond. But there's such a difference between a strategic nuclear weapon and a tactical. I mean, we'd like to say non-strategic right now, but that's such an ambiguous term. Is it because it's a big yield or a small yield? Is it a 
range thing is the system. And so we've kind of defaulted to, well, if it's not in a treaty, it must be non-strategic. But I think a lot of people, especially those not technically in the business, don't understand the the really broad range of yields. Um, and and when, you, when you say, well, okay, I'm going to use a few hundred tons, but it's a nuke. Well, it's a nuke. It's going to destroy everything. And that's not the case. Uh, you know, one of the examples I've used with people before is a, is a, a, a Sabo round from a tank. Um, it's about, when it deposits its energy, is about 15 megajoules of energy. Um, a 50 cal sniper rifle round delivers about 15 kilojoules, a thousand times left. But that's just a, a 50 cal rifle. Uh, a 22, a 22 rifle um, delivers about 160, 150, 200 joules. And a BB is only three or four joules of energy, if that. You got, you know, a million times different. And yet, you know, a BB is kind of like an ultra low yield weapon, a tactical, uh, like the old Davy Crockett you know, 10 or 20 tons. And, uh, you know, if you have a 150, 200 ton yield, say like the Beirut Harbor explosion that was conventional, that was kind of sort of about 300 tons. Well, that's your 22. And you're trying to compare that to something that was, you know, a Sabo round that can penetrate them, you know, a couple of feet of armor. Um, and so the effects are different. Uh, they're the same, but lesser scale. Everything scales down, uh, you know, whether it's the residual radiation, the fallout, the blast, and everything else. And right now, I think some of our adversaries are counting us on, on us being self-deterred. If all we have are the big rounds, are we going to respond to something that may kill 15 or 20 people if they use a tactical nuke with something that's going to kill 10,000, 100,000? I mean... Those are some things we just have to grapple with. There, there's a huge difference in in the ICBM type yields and you know a battlefield tactical weapon that the Army and the Navy and the Air Force used to have so many of. Yeah, so it's it's interesting to think through. So if we think about a GBU forty three, largest sort of conventional weapon, you know they're not. They're they're big. They're not easy to deliver. You're not strapping them on fighters. Uh, that's an 11 ton conventional weapon, and that's a that's a big boom. But we have let's say an ultra low yield nuclear weapon might be. You mentioned Davy Crockett, but you know we could think 30 tons, so essentially three times bigger than the largest conventional. And then we can think, you know five or 10 kilotons, you know, so this is much larger. And then, you know, we go all the way up to, you know, SLBMs and we can, and, you know, the Russians or the Chinese, they have differing yields for theirs, maybe 400 kilotons or the, you know, the B-83, which is, you know, a megaton class weapon. And, and can you talk about, so these are not linear in the devastation they cause, you know, a hundred times bigger doesn't mean a hundred times more destruction. 
can can you talk sort of about what this means for the destruction and some of those kind of key variables, you know, like high to burst, like a, an airburst, like take Hiroshima, for example, where you don't have lots of residual radiation because you didn't scoop up a lot of ground debris. And there's all of these kinds of elements that you have to take into account when you employ a nuclear weapon to then account for what kind of destruction does it cause. Can you talk about that some? A little bit. Um, well, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, both of those weapons were detonated three times above the fallout-free height of burst. There, there was no fallout. Um, yes, there were reports of some hot spots. Uh, no good studies have been done on that that I know of. I, I personally suspect, but I've not done the research, that that, that was not fallout because the, the burst was way too high to get fallout. It may have been induced radiation and then in the conflagration and, you know, you're going to get random deposits back on the ground, but it was very, very low level there. I mean, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, zero fallout, no fallout. Um, And they were fair sized weapons, but when you go down to the very small weapons, um, you know, we're talking uh, the blast effects of something like a 10 ton like a small Davy Crockett, they only go out a little over a hundred yards and, and the fallout free height of burst is only about 50 feet for a 10 ton weapon. Um, now we don't do a lot of study on those and you know, the fireball is going to be much smaller because a smaller burst. I don't know how high it's actually going to rise, how quickly it's going to cool, but you know, for the smaller weapons, the, the radiation is what, goes out the furthest. Anything below one kiloton, your your greatest range to lethal effect is for the radiation, not the blast or the heat. And kind of sort of between one and 10 kilotons, they're all kind of the same as far as the, the lethal radius. And above 10 kilotons, uh, then, then blast and heat take over and radiation's a minor thing. Um, but when we talk about tactical weapons, the, the amount of radiation is going to be much, much less. Um, you know, the, the, the ground, for a ground burst, a ground burst now of only a 10 to 100 ton weapon, the lethal fallout for 48 hours unprotected is only a few hundred, hundred to a couple of thousand meters in extent. Not not the big, you know, the old Glassstone and Dolan books, you know, which show the, the lethal fallout going for, you know, tens and twenties of miles or, or the Pacific tests where we had to move Islanders off. I mean, those were a million times bigger. You know, a smaller weapon is going to leave very much less radiation. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing. I mean, radiation is, is harmful and is bad. But the devastation is way less than the, the kind of weapons that we used in, in Japan. And I think that's the kind of thing that people are planning on in, in the adversaries that we, we may face. And they know which way the wind blows. And they know that um, you, know, you can pack an awful lot of punch on a very small thing, even if it's only you know, 20 or 50 tons, you know, 
you know, to do 20 tons of delivery, and this is a rough thing, uh, you know, if you, if you say a, a conventional missile, cruise missile or a strike missile of some has a thousand pound warhead. Well, then you're talking, you know, 40 cruise missiles for a 20 ton explosion. And, you know, what's our magazine depth? And I think they're counting on that. They don't have large magazine depths. We're seeing that in, in Ukraine. And you can make up a lot of ground with these. And I think our opponents recognize that. And, you know, I, I'm concerned about not having a, a proportionate capability that deters them from thinking they can win that way. Yeah, it's a, it, you bring up an interesting point and, you know, like for a, a, an ultra low yield nuclear weapon of, say, 20 tons. So roughly 20 times larger than our conventional cruise missiles. And this is really small, by the way. By nuclear standards, 20 tons is really small, but it can still achieve significant destruction on a target. And if that thing is detonated at a very low height of burst, you know, 100 to 200 feet, you can achieve significant damage at a fallout-free height of burst where you don't generate residual radiation, which then allows those that adversary's troops to come in behind that weapon and do whatever they want to do you know, to take and hold that territory or those buildings or whatever it may be. And that's, uh, you know, for the Russians who don't have, and you, you mentioned this to it for a similar conventional attack where you may have to use instead of one ultra low yield nuke nuclear cruise missile, you've got to use 40 conventionals and for magazine depth, we don't have it. The Russians don't have it. This can be a, a, a really attractive option, and it's something we really don't talk about much. And, and I wonder, as you go out and sort of read what's out there and read the discussions and the debates where there's no sort of tangible discussion about sort of real things that people can actually do, it's, it's sort of, it's very... Um, you know, the world's going to end if one's ever used because it always leads to Armageddon instead of an actual discussion of, hey, here's how it might be employed. Here's what the effects are. Here's, you know, what you can accomplish. Do you think that sort of failure to discuss the reality of employment is helpful, unhelpful? Maybe it doesn't matter at all. What, what's your take on that? Well, I, I think it's always unhelpful if you don't talk about it. I mean, we don't know for sure what's going to happen. And that's very people dependent and decision makers. You know, Herman Kahn used to say when, uh, you know, people were debating about nuclear war, he said he'll listen to anybody because no one's ever fought one. Even the experts, they haven't fought one. Um but if you read what our our potential adversaries are saying, you know, they don't seem to believe that small weapons are going to inevitably lead to a cataclysmic exchange of strategic weapons. Uh, and in fact, they're they're counting on it. Um, well, a couple of years ago, doing a paper uh, again for NSRI, was reading the Russian. Ministry of Defense doctrine guys 
and one of their one of their generals and a couple of their academic colonels had written a paper where they talk about using small nuclear weapons in a regional battle against a superior opponent and that's russian code for nato or the us superior opponent i mean they know they're outclassed they they know that and they said they would use these not to win but to bring the opponent to the negotiating table to get our attention uh, they're not afraid to use them because they recognize that we don't have a proportionate deterring capability that would be able to play along that escalation ladder. But I, I think these are things that we really, really need to think about. And, and again, when you're talking about weapons that are a million times less destructive than the big strategic weapons, there's some consideration to be given there that it, you know, especially in the fog of war, if the Russians use one, we may not even know they use one for days because they're so small in small in quotation marks. Um, but I, I, I think it's clear from the, the, the doctrinal writings of the Russians that they have no qualms about using small weapons to get our attention. Yeah. Uh, it's that time in the show where we do have to take a quick break. So when we come back, I want you to talk about the W-76-2 and, and just, you know, this is seen as like, hey, we have this low-yield option, and so therefore we don't need slick them in. We don't need any other options because we have W-76-2. But you don't really see it in the same way that some others do. So when we come back, I want you to, to walk me through your thoughts on, on the W-76-2 is, is the low-yield option. So you're listening to Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. The ANWA Deterrence Center and Nuclecast team joins the Exchange Monitor in inviting you to the 16th Annual Nuclear Deterrence Summit, January 31st through February 2nd at the Weston, Washington, D.C. Go to our website at anwadeter.org to register and receive a 15% discount. We look forward to seeing you there. back and we're talking to Dave Raybine. So Dave, I posed a question about the 76-2 before the break. What are your thoughts? Uh, I think it's good that we have a low yield option for some to give flexibility, but it certainly isn't the best of options that we could have. We have, we have several problems. It's being launched from a strategic asset. It's a strategic nuclear delivery, you know, the old treaty of a SNIDV and, and accountable. So we're launching something from a big valuable asset that has to be used in a non-strategic way. Actually, it doesn't have to be used. I mean, if you have a low yield, um, single digit kiloton kind of thing and you hit it, you know, you hit the Ministry of Defense in Moscow, okay, just hypothetically. Well, that's a strategic attack. Uh, but, you know, we, we have it in our hip pocket because we think we might need to use it regionally or in theater or in response. 
but good grief that those kind of things are not generally pre-planned like you know the old psyop days or our, our more modern plans now i mean the military folks at stratcom spend you know years keep refining and developing the plans are all ready to go but in a regional things are going to happen pretty quick and just the the labor to target something get that targeting data to the to the shooter then you got the time of flight of a of an slbm um you know we're we're kind of limiting the kind of things that it can do to very fixed immovable targets when usually you think in a regional conflict that things are happening there's other conflict going on back to the old days of tactical use and this is where we've kind of mixed and we've got a, a confusing conglomeration of terms for tactical and non-strategic and responsive i mean if we're going to fly say a b-52 with a low yield alcum well again you got the flight time and the, the planning and the routing it, it's not a, a responsive capability so yes i can picture things where the w 762 might be very useful but that's a very small group of things I, I think there's a much larger uh set of contingencies that we have no way to cover with a small non-strategic and i'll say tactical size weapon i mean even the b60 b61 by dual capable aircraft i i the, the planning that goes to put a a dual capable aircraft on target with suppression of enemy air dispenses, um, you know, escorts and, you know, paving the way and flight time that I, I'm, I'm one of those that I do not call the B-61 by dual capable air. That's not a tactical weapon. It's not, it's not a tactical weapon. There are people that like to call that tactical weapons are things like the old Lance, uh, you know, which was on the battlefield with, with the, you know, core division commander given authority after release from the president, he can, you know, shoot a certain number in a certain time and he can respond within minutes to things happening in the local fight. And that's what the, the W 76 two does not have. It is not responsive. There's a question of uh, command and control efficiencies. And, and I know the military can work that out, but you know, you got a strategic kind of sense of command and you got the local commander who's in the fight and you got the time of flight and all these, these planning things that are going to make it very complicated to be as responsive as I think many people would wish it could be. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I mean, it's, it's not as though you can take that nuclear artillery you know, and wheel it, you know, 15 or 20 degrees to the left or the right, and then, you know, strike a target in, in a matter of seconds, you know, it's, you can't do that with a 76-2 and a SLBM. So it's, and, you know, you mentioned battlefield weapons that, and pre-delegation authority, it, it is a very different fight. And this is perhaps one of the reasons we might need to do a better job a very clearly delineating, you know, what is strategic, what is tactical, what does that mean? And not just, you know, range say, oh, well, if it's, if it goes, you know, 
6,000 miles or more, it's strategic. And if it, you know, if it goes, you know, 300 or less, well, that's tactical. Or, well, it can only go a certain amount of, of distance and it can only have a yield up to. Uh, you know, we've probably got to think through more of employment. What Are there any other variables that you, like if you were to say, hey, this is what should be tactical. This is how you should define it. And what would you say? What would be sorted? What would you bucket to make thing to make a weapon a tactical weapon? Well, I, I think everybody wants to you know, have a clear definition. Uh, I'm not sure we're going to get there. I mean, right now the definition we we don't even use the word tactical in the U.S. I mean, the Russians do, and France and uh, France has their own definitions. Everybody's definitions are a bit different. <laughs> To me, tactical is a weapon that's used by the local commander in a close-in fight. I mean, he, he's in the thick of it, and he needs to make things happen right away. Um, I, don't, I don't think the definition depends on yield. Yes, colloquially, big ones are strategic and little ones are tactical. But again, if we use the W76 too, I mean, it's the same it's an SLBM and has a range. If we use a small weapon on a deep target in the homeland of an opponent against a command center, well, that's probably strategic. Um, but if you use a hundred kilotonish weapon on, uh, say, an enemy fleet, you know, in, in, in an ongoing sea battle, well, that's a tactical use. It's not strategic. So. Yield isn't the definition. I think the definition is who's in the close-in fight. You know, we, historically, we talk about the levels of war. You know, we have tactical, operational, and strategic. And I think if we use those long-held definitions, then, we, we, you know, we're, we're on the right track. So the guy that's fighting the fight in contact with the enemy, that's tactical. The guy that's trying to... Uh, change things in the theater and affect logistics and supply that's operational and if you're striking the homeland and trying to um, destroy infrastructure and war supporting industry well that's strategic i think we do better to define it that way than in yields i i think who gets to who gets to pick the target and pull the trigger and and what what's its purpose that's really tactical and, and strategic yeah that's a that's a good point. I mean, that's that also belies your army background, of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, and your time in the army specifically. So, it, now we're at that time in in every Nuclecast show where we bring out Bob the genie, and as I rub my magic lamp, Bob lets you make three wishes related to our discussion today. So you can't wish for wealth, you can't wish for world peace but you can wish for things relevant to what we've talked about. So if you have those three wishes, Dave, what would the, what would wish number one be? Relevant to today's discussion. Um, I'd like to see the U S have and deploy a small yield ultra low or very low yield weapon meaning tens or hundreds of tons in a shram like delivery system for tactical use 
I, I think we have a, a real gap in our in our uh, ability to face the Russian threat and the Chinese threat in the tactical arena. So that would be one. Um, I think we need to have a better, a more broad, not better, because they're, the, the guys that are in the military doing it in the business, they're good. But we have so few. Uh, we, you know, we've, we've lost that culture of what, what really happens with nukes. And I can give you some war stories from the last 20 or 30 years where I've, I've just scratched my head in, in talking with staff officers who haven't a clue. Not not a clue about uh, nuke weapons or just the basic physics and, and health safety that goes with them. Uh, we, we need to work on that. A third wish? Well, I don't, you know, I don't want to tick off my friends in the in the in the <laughs> infrastructure in the DOE. We we gotta we gotta find a way to to get our production and infrastructure up to snuff. We are over-regulating, over-optimizing, making things too complicated and expensive, <laughs> and and you know we're we're in a world of hurt of being able to sustain our nuclear forces right now. Yeah. Now, before we end, I want to ask this sort of something I've I asked. We had General Brad Garricky, who was the retired as the G three five, you know, the Army's chief strategist, and I asked him, should the Army go back to being a service that fields nuclear weapons? And I want to ask you the same question: Should the Army go back to being a service? that fields nuclear weapons. Maybe yeah. would that solve your would that solve your problem of of understanding this conventional nuclear integration piece and and what it might mean to face Russians who employ nuclear weapons on the battlefield? It may not solve it, but it'll go a long way in helping even the score. I mean, uh, again, I I think I think the inability to appropriately respond to fight and win and therefore being able to be able to do that deter regional conflicts regional conflicts are just as important to strategic deterrence i mean we, we try and parse them too fine i mean if we lose in a region we lose our allies i mean that's one of the strengths of the u.s we we have we have good allies we have a broad coalition that doesn't want to see Russia do things. It doesn't want to see China do things. But, you know, if we keep losing in regions pretty soon, we're not going to have those allies anymore. And so, yeah, I, I, I just really think that the ability of the U.S. to demonstrate a real capability, not just a paper capability, a real capability to take on people and match them up and make them hesitate and pause. That's deterrence. That they're just, you know, it's not worth it for me to go up against these guys. And so, yeah, I think having the Army get back into the business with its long-range strike programs, the new, you know, the, what is it, the the new system coming on, Dark Eagle, the hypersonic and uh, delivery vehicle, what, 1,700-some miles uh, distance. I mean, to be able to put, small tactical weapons on a system like that 
will just give people pause. And right now, we're not doing that. And uh, I don't mean that we need to fight the whole war with nukes. No. I mean, we got an extraordinarily capable conventional force between us and our allies, and we ought to make use of that. But we need to close the gap that I think our opponents see a potential where they can outmaneuver us. They can they can outdeter us because we have no capability. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said, Dave Rabine. Thanks for joining us on Nuclecast. Thanks, Adam. And thanks to you, the listeners. And, you know, this is what happens every every Nuclecast is we always run out of time. And so just as you're like, I want to hear more, I want to hear more, we run out of time. But we strive, of course, to only last as long as your commute to and from the office. And so that's a, that's one of our goals at Nuclecast is to give you something to listen to on your way to work or on your way home. And so that's why we try to hold it to about 30 minutes or so. So thanks for listening. Of course, another great discussion with Dave Rabine. And thanks uh, to you, the listeners, every week. And please join us on the next episode. Well, we just talked to Dave Rabine. And, you know, Dave, is he is a true technical expert. And so I've always appreciated his views on technical issues. And, you know, as an Army 52 who was you know, uh, in the army as a young officer, the end of the cold war, he's got some experiences that we've not seen, you know, the, for people who are younger, you know, you haven't really seen them. So it was good to hear Dave's sort of thinking on, you know, tactical versus strategic. And, you know, I probably, I've, I've always bend it in terms of, well, lower yield, shorter range, therefore it's tactical. But I, I liked, you know, where Dave went with it, you know, in terms of it's not really range or yield, but it's, you know, it's purpose. And, you know, he defined it differently, in, but he defined it in a way that actually made sense. So I like that. So hopefully you enjoyed talking with Dave as well. Uh, I'm, I did. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.